You can keep your Bibles right where they're at. That will be our passage this morning. Chapter 20, verses 18 to 21, Lord willing. Last week we looked at verses 2 through 17, where Luke, we have been studying the book of Acts, just as a quick reminder. Last week, everyone in here has heard that so many times, like, quit saying it! Well, some people haven't heard it. We, uh, last week, we looked at verses 2 through 17, where Luke recorded Paul's encouragement tour, if you will, where he traveled from Corinth to Miletus, encouraging the churches to remain in the faith, endure persecution, stand firm against false teachers, and to give generously to the fund that he was collecting for the impoverished believers at Jerusalem. When Paul reached Miletus, he summoned the elders of the Ephesian church to come to him so that he could speak to them. The speech or address that we're about to look at is the only speech of Paul in Acts that is or was presented to Christians if you've looked at the book of Acts or if you've been with us for any length of time, you immediately realize that Paul has primarily preached the gospel to unbelievers. He's been a missionary everywhere he's gone, and, and this is really the, the only, I guess, speech or, yeah, the only speech that he actually gave to, to Christians. The address we're about to look at is the only speech of him to Christians. I've divided the rest of chapter 20, the rest of our chapter, into three sections. It's really just one big narrative, one big sermon, and uh, it would be pretty difficult to, to kind of teach through it the way that we normally do. So I've divided the rest of the chapter into three teachable parts. Number one would be Paul's example. That's verses 18 to 27. We'll look at some of that this morning. Number two would be Paul's exhortation. That's verses 28 to 35. And then lastly, Paul's exit, him leaving Miletus, verses 36 to 38. Let's pray one last time, or one more time, I should say, uh, before we get to work. Lord, open our eyes, minds, and hearts to the truth, Lord. I pray that you would equip the saints this morning for the ministry of the gospel, that you would call anyone in this room who is not yet in Christ, not yet repentant of sin and following Christ, that you would call and command them to do so today. May your will be done in this place, and may you receive all the glory and praise. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Our focus this morning will be on number one, Paul's example, verses 18 to 27. You're all turned there already, right? Good. Now, Paul summoned the elders of Ephesus to come to Miletus for a couple of reasons. Number one, he's 30 miles south of Ephesus. He knew that if he went into Ephesus, he would be delayed from getting to Jerusalem by the day of Pentecost, which is what he wanted to do. So he didn't go into Ephesus to, to have a lot of time consumed in all these things. He went to Miletus, which was close. And when he got there, he summoned the elders to come to him. And when they arrived, he, he sort of figured the best way to encourage them in ministry, the best way to train them, the best way to equip them to serve as elders was to point them to his own example. To point them to his own example. In verses 18 to 27, he lays out his ministry example. He lays out his preaching example. And he lays out his courageous example. In that little section. Now let's look at the first example. A, his ministry example. That'd be verses 18 and 19. The text says, and when they came to him, we, we can see that they've arrived at Miletus. They came to him. He said to them, he began to address them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Now these two verses are pretty amazing. They seem pretty simple. You could read it quickly and just kind of move on. But they actually tell us five things about his ministry. 
They tell us five things about his ministry. Again, what he's intending to do is show his own example to equip these guys to follow his example, to lead as he has led. Five things about his ministry we see in these two verses. Number one, it was corporate ministry. Number one, it was corporate ministry. Verse 18, I lived among you the whole time. Paul lived and worked among the elders. He, he didn't isolate himself from folks by living in some splendid missionary headquarters, which tends to be the case with Christian missions throughout the world. There's a compound they all live on, and then they go out into the community, and in a way they live among the people, but in a way they really don't. They're not living in the same homes, shanties, shacks, what have you. Paul did a corporate style of ministry where he literally lived right there with the people. He didn't set himself up in some headquarters or some distant place. He wasn't what we might refer to as an ivory tower theologian, which would be one who basically studies the word and, 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 and writes commentary and these things and gives explanations and commentaries while living disconnected from everyone else in an ivory tower, not having any interaction with his subjects or with his target audience or with the church or with the common folks down below. This too has been a problem throughout church history that men have just sort of set themselves up as ivory tower missionaries. Now Paul actually lived and ministered among the elders and others and, and he actually invited and trained others to come in and join in the ministry of the gospel which makes it a corporate ministry. Corporate just basically means it's more than one person. It's a group of people that come together to accomplish the same purposes. Because of Paul's style of ministry, that it was a corporate style of ministry, the, the elders basically knew him personally and they knew his ministry. They knew Paul as the missionary and pastor who helped them understand the consequences of the truth of the gospel for their lives. And more importantly, they knew him as, as they had come to Miletus, they knew him as a former colleague in the ministry of the gospel in their city of Ephesus. Paul wants the elders to know that they are to do ministry with the people. How many of you have ever thought of, maybe we've all been part of, I would imagine we've all been a part of certain churches and things, and the elders seem to be this reclusive sort of group that, you know, when you see them, it's almost like they glow. Like, that's an elder, behave. I remember saying that to myself several times when I was at Big Valley, you know, <laughs> elder, then they get by. You think of elders as the, this, this isolated little group of, of the, the, the holiest of the holy guys of the church and, you know, and they're working all the, the puppet strings and all the pastors and everything downstream or whatever from some special room and, and, you know, and they're not there actually mixing and mingling with people. And that really wasn't the case at Big Valley. Those elders were pretty out there. But it can happen and, and, and maybe you've seen that happen. I, I've certainly seen it happen. And Paul's exhorting them and saying, don't, don't do the elder board isn't a group that's just disconnected from the rest of the church. You're to be right there as an under-shepherd doing ministry among the people. That is the essence of Christian ministry. Or missionary witnessing. Number two, it was exemplary ministry. Number one, it was corporate. Number two, it was exemplary Ministry And some of these things, there's less description on them than, than the others. But it says, verse 18, you yourselves. You yourselves. Meaning that they had seen what Paul was doing. The elders understood how Paul lived. They observed his missionary and pastoral practices. They, they noted his lifestyle and, and saw his courage in the face of potentially deadly opposition. They themselves could testify to the fact that his ministry was exemplary. You know, basically worth emulating, worth copying, of value. It, it was an example for all ministry and for all missions work and, and these sorts of things. It was exemplary. It was worth 
imitating. You saw how I ministered. You saw how I was among the people. You saw what I did. You saw what I did behind closed doors away. And you saw how I did ministry. Now, now Paul's not boasting at all. He's just saying, look, your ministry should be exemplary. It should be worth emulating. Now, now just, just, just think about that example in the church today. Can you think of a lot of churches that are doing ministry where their ministry is worth following and copying? <laughs> With all the pragmatism that's out there and all the seeker sensitivity and, and then just quite frankly in some churches there's just absolute bedlam and craziness. and <laughs> Signs and wonders gone wild. Is any of that stuff worth emulating? Is it exemplary? Is it worth copying? The only ministry that's worth the only ministry that's exemplary is ministry that's done according to what God has prescribed in his word. I can't stand the fact that I even thought this way and that many pastors think today that they have some sort of autonomy and they can kind of just figure out how to do Christian ministry and do it however they want. And as long as Jesus is in there somewhere, it's okay. Wrong. Why we put such an emphasis on Acts 2.42 here, it pretty much shows us how to do ministry. Paul's saying, I did ministry like that. Look and follow this lead. Three, it was subservient ministry, subservient ministry. Verse 19, serving the Lord. Paul served the Lord as a humble slave. Most English translations downplay the significance of the term serving in verse 19 and everywhere else whenever you see servant and servant, these things show up. It's not a reference to serving by doing this or that, by serving in kids ministry or on the hospitality team or by painting walls or any of those things. Those are all great things. That's not what this verse is referring to. That's not what this phrase, this word is referring to. It literally means to be owned by another, to be one's slave. Serving is doulos in Greek, which means slave or slaving. Lord, right there in your text, is kyrios in Greek, and it means master. So the correct rendering would be, and the English really doesn't grab it like it should, it should be from this, from the first day I set foot in Asia, I slaved for my master. I don't know if you're an expert in Greek, but if you were to read it in Greek, it'd probably look a lot more like that. From the first day I stepped out of this region and stepped into uh, Asia Minor and stepped foot in Ephesus, I slaved for my master. There's no negative connotation here. It's not like slavery in the sense that we think of slavery. And this is pretty much why, you know, uh, translators have downplayed these words that are so critical in Scripture. They're afraid of, you know, the, the negative aspects and things that come with the idea of slavery and all that. But it's funny, the Bible talks about slavery all the time in a positive sense. That we would surrender ourselves as slaves to our master who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's a beautiful thing. We have a, a, a benevolent, loving, gracious master. He's not a hard task, you know, master. He doesn't crush us. His burden is light. His yoke is easy. And so that's what this means here. It means, man, when I came there, I, I, I slaved for my master. Paul conducted himself as one who was in total submission and service to Jesus Christ as his slave. His ministry was subservient to the Lord. Paul referred to himself as a slave to the Lord in Romans 1.1, 1, 1, 1 Corinthians 7.2.2, 2, Galatians 1.10, Philippians 1.1, 1, 1, and Titus 1.1. 1, 1. Slave, master, slave, master, you know. He did not consider himself even to be a servant who shows up and does a few things here and there. His entire life was bowed before Christ as his Lord and master. And guess what? Ministry should be done this way. It ain't about us. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ who's our master and that we serve him faithfully, that we submit to him and that we serve him as a slave. And what does that mean? It means we do what he says. And I can tell you this. 
doing what that master, the Lord Jesus, says is the only thing that will actually bring you joy in life. Some of you have a bossy spouse and they order you around and all that. There's not a whole lot of joy in that. You have a bossy boss who, you know, whips your back once in a while and it's just, it's kind of a tough, challenging thing and it's like, ah, it just stinks when he gets on me and I got to do these things or whatever. Serving the Lord isn't like that. Actually, it shouldn't be like that with others. If we're serving Jesus in those workplaces, we ought to consider bowing to him. It would look like bowing to others. Subservient doesn't mean just to the lordship, like submitting to the Lord. It also means submitting to others. Consider yourselves less than others is what the scriptures constantly command, in the New Testament at least. Consider others better than yourself, greater, more significant than yourself. So subservient ministry doesn't have to do with just master-slave. It also has to do with us humbly submitting ourselves to others. And it's amazing how Christians, Christians say, you know, well, I have no problem with submitting to the Lord, but I don't know about that bozo over there. Well, so often it's kind of connected, you know, submitting to the Lord means submitting to the bozo. <laughs> I hate that part. But it's true. Christian missions and ministry should be subservient to the Lord first and then to others. And then four, it was selfless ministry. Paul served with all humility, he says. He didn't serve for selfish reasons, but with selfless devotion to the Lord. He had the attitude of a slave. Humility here means negatively renouncing any will to rule and positively serving with goodness and understanding. In Philippians 2, 3, Paul defined a humble person as one who serves without selfishness or conceit and who considers others as more significant than himself or herself. Just talked about that. Paul literally modeled this kind of selfless attitude and ministry before the elders and before everyone that he served before. Ministry is to be selfless ministry. I mean, ministry, the very essence of it is serving others, right? Which means you, you really can't do it from a selfish perspective. How can you serve others? Well, I, 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 well, I'm a human. I guess you can do it. You can do it for your own reasons and for your own glory and for your own sake and for your own reputation and for your own salary. Although I guess there's a lot of ways that you can screw it up. But Christian Ministry is to be about selflessness. It's about people dying to themselves and serving others and putting others' needs before themselves. And Paul basically did this so very well. He, and, and who did this unlike anyone ever? The Lord Jesus. Just read the Gospel of Mark. It's all about his service. That's why it includes more miracles and more things that he did. Nobody served so humbly as Jesus. And I'll tell you who ran a close second is Paul. Fifth, it was embattled ministry. Embattled. Paul said there in the text, he ministered among them with what? Tears. He anguished over the unbelief of many of the Jews in Ephesus who hatched plots to harm him. He referred to their attempts as trials. That's what he's speaking about here. He wept over the trials and the rejection of the Jews and then the trials that they incited against him, the things, the attacks, the verbal attacks, the physical attacks. Remember, they tried to kill him when he left the city. Because of these trials, he experienced deep-seated anguish, profound distress, and heartfelt sorrow. And he didn't hide his emotions from the elders at Ephesus. Obviously, he's reminding them, remember how I suffered when I was with you? Remember how I wept? Remember? He wept in front of them, mourned in front of them. Why was Paul's ministry an embattled ministry? Why would 
Christian ministry ever be an embattled ministry? Isn't it just about loving people and peace and, and these things and, and harmony and kumbaya and all these things? No! Why was this ministry embattled? Why, why, why do people suffer in Iraq and in the Sudan and even here in a sense, maybe not to the same level? Because the message of the cross is offensive. It doesn't tickle our ears. It doesn't make us feel good about ourselves. Galatians 5.11 says it is offensive. It attacks who we are and what we do and what we worship. How we behave. The core of who we are. What we believe and think. Even what we feel. The cross is literally a wrecking ball. The cross and its message is so simple. That's what we all deserve. Because we're sinners. Because God's wrath is stoked against us. Because we're all rebels. Because we've all hated God and sinned against him. We're not good for the cross. You look at it. What does it say? It says we're not good people. We're wicked. We're evil. We're disobedient. Americans hate that kind of language. Because we think we're good. And we think, you know, because we prosper here financially or because we try to live these good lives or whatever it is because we have so much stuff. I don't know what it is that perpetuates these things, but Americans just think that everything's cool. We're good here. This is a Christian nation. I suspect if we were really a Christian nation, we'd be going through what Iraq is going through. This ain't a Christian nation. Never has been. Never. This, this nation isn't any more a Christian nation than, than, than Israel's really, you know, fully and completely the people of God. Not every Jew comes from Abraham in a spiritual sense. We're, we're not, this isn't a Christian nation. We may have had some Christian principles and some good godly men, you know, construct our constitution and, and do their very best. But this country is as Greek as you can get. This is a Rome here. That's what this is. This is a modern day Rome. And the cross says, you're a modern day Rome. And you need to repent and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And people don't want to hear that. Therefore, Christian ministry is an embattled ministry. It's going to be attacked by many, many enemies. As you serve faithfully and proclaim the gospel, you will suffer. It's an embattled ministry. Paul's ministry was an embattled ministry, was it not? He basically got chased out of every city he went to. Get out of here with that garbage. Whatever, go to the next city. Paul wanted the elders to follow his example in ministry. He wanted them to serve corporately, to set an exemplary example, to follow his lead there, to, to be subservient to the Lord and to one another, to be selfless in ministry, and to know that they would face many, many persecutions and battles. Doing ministry right means trouble. Now Paul's example here is also for every elder who has ever, will ever serve the church as an elder. This isn't just written in some little vacuum for these guys. This is what you guys are to do. Forget about everyone else. I'm amazed at how we don't, and, and, and I'm guilty of this, how we don't use this whole passage to train elders. We tend to look at 2 Timothy and Titus. Every elder should lead this way and follow these examples. Every Christian should follow these examples, not just for elders. Every elder and Christian, these things apply to us. Now, after pointing them to his ministry, he pointed them to be his Preaching example, verses 20 through 21. He says, how I did not shrink. I love that. 
How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, 21, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now what he emphasizes here is is not only characteristic of his own preaching, but of also the ministry of all witnesses of the gospel. Paul describes how we witness, why we witness, where we witness, to whom we witness, and with what we are to witness with. These amazing little two verses contain all these instructions here. We're going to look at them. Number one, how do we witness? As witnesses of Christ, as missional people, as missionaries right here in our own land, in our own community. We're beginning here in Judea, as the Lord said, preach the gospel there and then move out from there. And others have already moved out. But how do we witness here in our Judea, in Modesto, in our community? How do we witness? I'll tell you how we do it. We witness orally. We speak. Verse 20, I did not shrink from declaring to you, declaring to you. Christian witnessing has to do with talking and and teaching and sharing and preaching. Francis of Assisi, you've probably heard of him, maybe was dead wrong when he said preach the gospel at all times and use words when necessary. What? What? The idea of spreading the gospel by simply living right in front of others is absolutely ridiculous. If the success of the gospel depends on my or your or our ability to live right, then the gospel will never be successful. Right? You think about that for a second. If the success of the gospel depends on how well I live, forget about that gospel. It ain't worth following. I'm a moron. I walk in righteousness on Tuesday. By Wednesday, I'm like, (laughs) I'm the beast with seven horns or heads or whatever. I act like a fool. I slip. I fall. I I get into sin. I'm tempted. My life is a mess. Why I praise God for the gospel and and for for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. But you just think about that. Just preach the gospel wherever you go. And, and, you know, whenever you're you're required to, use words. I, I know... Unbelievers who, who, who walk the righteous, if you will, or a good tightrope, a good life tightrope, better than I ever could. And people aren't looking at them and saying, look, they're acting like Jesus. Believers are not always the best example, are we? <laughs> we fail, we, we sin, we, we screw up, we're selfish. We are sinners still, saved by grace. Becoming like the Lord Jesus Christ, but not fully like him. The success of the gospel is not based on what we do, but upon what Christ did. In accordance with the plan of God, which was drawn up in eternity past. The only example we can look to to see perfection in the gospel is Jesus, not you. Now, now, don't get me wrong. The Holy Spirit will work out the gospel in our lives. We will begin to live differently. There's no doubt. So it is possible to model the gospel in our daily living in a sense or to a degree. We are to live it out before our neighbors and so on. It shouldn't be just a word thing. It should be a deed thing. But modeling the gospel should never override speaking the gospel. When people notice our lives, they're different. We say things differently. We behave differently. Maybe we spend differently. Whatever these examples are, we're being changed. We're being, you know, molded and and conformed to the image of Christ. We are becoming different people. When people look at our lives, and and this has happened in my own workplace, you know, because I'm uh, bivocational. I got to make money and feed my family. The, The church is fairly small, you know? They say, man, what is it about him? He is different. When we're talking about women and drinking and partying and stupid, he's pretty much quiet or says, hey, guys. You know, when people see our lives and see that we have different lives, our answer should always be, 
because of the gospel. Personal testimony. This is why I do what I do. And when I screw up, which is regularly, I'm depending on the grace of God in the gospel. The gospel is a verbal message. It ain't some robotic thing that we can walk around and show off. It is a verbal proclamation. It is a verbal message. It must, therefore, be spoken. MacArthur said in response to Francis Assisi's very old and very popular, say, I remember big banners of that thing, you know, preach the gospel always and sometimes use words at a church I was at, and I was just like, no! MacArthur says, preach the gospel at all times and always use words. I love that. And no matter what Paul went through, no matter what he experienced, tears and trials and plots and death sentences and threats and slander and personal attack, no matter what, he never shrunk back from verbally declaring the truth. That's what it says. He didn't shrink back from that. He didn't, you know, recoil he didn't capitulate. Well, I, I, I'm sorry, I, I've offended you with the gospel. He just put it out there and kept putting it out there and kept suffering and kept putting it out there and kept being faithful. He never shrunk from declaring. And we must follow his example. Every elder, every Christian. Two, why do we witness? Why do we witness? Remember, Paul's answering these things here. These are the examples he wants them to catch. So when they preach and, and do these things, this is what you're to do. Why do we witness? We witness to profit others. Verse 20, declaring to you anything. I never shrunk back from declaring to you anything that was profitable. There really are three primary purposes for preaching and witnessing. Number one, the glorification of God. Number two, the salvation of lost sinners. Number three, the edification of the saints. That's why we preach. That's why we proclaim the truth. Now, two of these things have to do with profiting man. When lost sinners are brought to faith by the power of the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the word, they profit. Christ is joined with them and they experience his joy and, and peace and, and they begin to live what the Bible calls the abundant life. Salvation is by far the most profitable thing that preaching can deliver. You know, salvation is of infinite profit and value. Now, preaching can also be, or witnessing can also be profitable for a believer, which is what Paul is referring to here. He desired that the church, when he preached, that the church would profit from his preaching, that his preaching would yield profitable results in their lives. Now, you must understand, profitable here has absolutely nothing to do with health, nothing to do with wealth, and nothing to do with success. It has to do with spiritual things like growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus, being conformed to the image of Christ, and being built up in their most holy faith. Our witnessing must be done with this kind of benefiting attitude. When we go out and witness, we want to profit others. And so often we go out and we want to bring them down or we want to criticize them or we want to judge and point out their sin and, and these things and, and we create more strife and trouble. We should seek to profit with our witnessing, with our preaching, with our teaching, with our sharing, rather than seeking to tear people down with ridicule or judgment. Now, verse 20 also implies that Paul wasn't interested in declaring anything that was unprofitable. In other words, Paul was not a fan of wasting his words. He deliberately declared things from the word that were profitable, not unprofitable. And then as I was reading this and studying this, I thought, how much of my speech is unprofitable? 
How many words do I waste? How many words do we waste on topics that have no eternal quality or edifying effect? The things that just don't profit anyone. You just think about that for a second. We say a lot of things, some more than others. And how much of all that we're saying has any good eternal quality? Or has any profitable effect, potential for profit in someone's lives in terms of spiritual development and growth, the gospel, those things. Pretty staggering when you start to think about it. And how much of our our speech is self-speech where we talk about our problems, our work, our health, our money, our hobbies, our marriages, our families, our relationships, and so on. How many words do we dedicate to talking about ourselves more than anything else? How does this kind of speech, this endless speech of me, 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 how does this kind of endless speech about ourselves profit others? It doesn't. In fact, over time, it exasperates those who listen to it. And don't get me wrong, everybody, everyone in the the church is entitled to a little self-speech. But notice how I said little. We are not ever to be the center of every conversation and prayer request. Never. We need to get over ourselves. We need to learn to die to ourselves. We're supposed to have a kingdom disposition attitude and a kingdom vocabulary. Now, it is true that Paul was referring to his own example in the text and that he was speaking about himself. But what did he say? All that he has said so far and in this message here has to do with equipping the elders for service. This kind of self-speech is good and profitable talking about the things that God has done in and through you, talking about the ministry that he laid out before you that you were a part of and those things. That's profitable talk. You're trying to give an exemplary example of ministry, you know, by the blessing of God to you, and and you try to show those things. That's profitable talk, but you got to be careful there. You don't want to talk about your ministry all day long, every day. That's all you ever talk about. We mustn't go on and on and on about what Christ is doing in and through us. Because that can become exasperating. I recently listened to a a 55-minute sermon given by a local pastor, and and he spent five minutes talking about the Bible and 50 minutes talking about himself. All that he's been involved in, all the trophies, everything, where he's gone, and all this stuff. It was basically five minutes of Bible teaching, which really wasn't all that good to begin with, and then 50 minutes of personal testimony about all this stuff. I could have probably handled 10 minutes of him talking about his examples, but he went on and on and on for 50. By the time it was all said and done, it was absolutely exasperating. I was yelling at my computer, stop talking about yourself. For the love of all that is holy, shut up. Unreal. Well, I did this and I did that and I blah, 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 blah. You know what he is? A me monster. You did this over here in Minnesota. I did this in Canada. Shut up. The purpose of your pulpit is not you. Not me. People go on and on and on. Spiritual me monsters are every bit as bad as regular old me monsters who talk about all their stuff and their deal and their example and their life and all that. Oh, God's doing all these things in my life and the other person, oh, my life, oh, it's terrible. This is what's going on and all that. And every time you meet with this person, that's all they ever talk about. And you're just like, ah! Sometimes you want to say, are you a believer? Because you, you don't, you have a reel that just keeps going and going and going and you live in what seems to be absolute despair or fear. Do you not understand what Christ has done for you? What he's accomplished for you? Quite frankly, there are just other things you can talk about. God's given us a lot of words. He doesn't want us to use them to talk about us endlessly over and over and over. We are to speak 
for the benefit and profit of others? And what resource do we have that's actually going to do that or have any sort of positive effect on anyone's lives? It ain't you. It's the Bible. It's the gospel. Let's be like Paul. Let's be like Paul. Not enthralled with ourselves. Ultimately causing harm to others because all we ever talk about is us. Let's be like Paul. Let's be strategic with our words, using them to profit others inside and outside the church. Basically what Paul's telling the elders is don't make preaching about you. Three, where do we witness? Where do we witness? We witness everywhere. Verse 20, teaching you in public and from house to house, from casa to casa. Paul preached and taught the gospel publicly in synagogues, in the lecture hall of Tyrannus, and in the Agora, which is the shopping center or the center of Greco-Roman cities. And he preached and taught the gospel from house to house, i.e. the private homes of believers where new converts and the curious gathered. The idea here is that we should spread the gospel wherever we go. The early Christians were really, really good at this. In Acts 8, 4, we read a long time ago, we read about how they gossiped the gospel wherever they went. You know, they were driven out of Jerusalem because of persecution. And wherever they went to, Samaria, up north or wherever, they just talked about Jesus. Gossiping the gospel isn't like, you know, writing little sermons. And when you go to Rayleigh's, when you're in line, you know, you've decided to, you know, pull up a milk cart and preach the gospel right there. That's not what it looks like. That'd be very fun to watch. So if any of you are going to do it, let me know when. Gossiping the gospel simply means to talk about Jesus in your daily conversations. If Jesus is the apple of our eye, shouldn't he be the point and purpose of our tongue? Seriously, you think about that for a moment. It's just, it's just including Jesus in everyday conversation. Well, you know the Lord and blah, 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 blah. And, and here's what he's been doing and, and here's the things that are going on. And, and here's what he, he calls us to do. And, and, you know, and he's so good, man. I'll tell you, if it wasn't for his grace, I'd just be, you know, a big turd. That's just gossiping the gospel. You, you just sprinkle the gospel into everyday conversations. Talk about Christ and his amazing work. Well, this is how you witness everywhere. Now, public in Greek is demosios, which means among the general populace. This is pretty much everywhere outside of private residence. That's what it means. But then Paul said from house to house. House is kata. And it means household. The idea here is that Paul went to houses and shared the gospel with everyone who lived in a household. Every member of the household. Mom, dad, children, grandparents, relatives, guests, those funky relatives you can't get rid of, servants, and so on. When he went to a house, he preached the gospel to everyone there. And back in this culture, a lot of people lived in homes. A lot of family members. We didn't send them off to a convalescent place, our parents or grandparents. They stayed with you until they passed away. He just went into these households and preached to everyone there. He didn't say, okay, children, it's time to go into children's ministry up in you. We do that. I can't stand that at times. He didn't discriminate or not discriminate but draw distinctions there. He pretty much preached to everyone. He, he invited, if he was invited into the home, he would probably sit, stand in a corner or something of that nature and have everyone come in and listen to the gospel, even the littlest ones, like these little Twin munchkins right over here. They're more responsive to my preaching than most people in this room. <laughs> They're like, you know, Pastor Phil, you just keep preaching. Hi. <laughs> They're looking at me like, he's scary. <laughs> we preach everywhere. Demosios. General populace, and then kata, households, houses, homes, parents, wherever you are, wherever you go. 
And we might think to ourselves, because of the way Paul did this in public, and, and that's pretty bold, and then to do it in all these households, we might think that, you know, maybe Paul was quite the extraordinary, you know, person for ministering this way, right? We might be led to believe, well, that's pretty just bold. You just go into, into the mall and start proclaiming the gospel, or you go house to house and all that. You know, we might be led to think that, wow, that's so bold. He, he's special. It, you know, maybe he's a cut above most others. Maybe... He received, you know, a special anointing and, and he, you know, he had this kind of uniqueness about him and, and, and guess what? That's not at all the way that we're to think about him. Paul simply believed and obeyed the clear teachings of scripture. That's all he did. He took Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. Go, therefore, make disciples in all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that Christ commanded. He basically took that passage literally. What a concept. The Great Commission became his commission. And his expectation was that the Ephesian elders and every other believer, all believers that were downstream, that, that, that were overseen by them and cared for and loved on by them would do the same. Not just the elders, but the congregations that they oversaw and led. There is no escape clause, no bypass clause for American Christians. The Great Commission is also our commission do we take Matthew 28, 18 to verse 20 literally? Do we seek to obey the Lord's instructions to make disciples in public and in private? Paul saying to the elders, that's what you're to do. For who do we witness to? Who do we witness to? We witness where? Everywhere. Who do we witness to? To everybody. Verse 21, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks. Paul preached and taught both Jews and Greeks. He spoke to his fellow Jews, members of God's people who knew the scriptures and were awaiting, uh, waiting for the Messiah. He spoke before Greeks in the synagogue where he encountered God-fearers who were Gentiles who sympathized with the beliefs and practices of the Jewish people. And in the forum where he encountered anybody who happened to be there, including philosophers, rich and poor, men and and women, Paul proclaimed the gospel to all human beings without ethnic, religious, social, or gender distinctions. Our culture promulgates a path of least resistance mindset. If it ain't easy, don't do it. If there is risk, avoid it. If it causes pain, pop a pill. Unfortunately, many in the church have embraced this line of thinking. They have a Burger King, have it our way mentality when it comes to evangelism, when it comes to preaching, when it comes to witnessing. They preach to whom they want to preach to and keep silent when the risk of discomfort or trouble is increased. This is a problem that plagues the church today. They want easy button evangelism. That was easy. Now I'm guilty of this myself. I'm very attracted as a human being, as a fallen human being, I'm very attracted and drawn to low risk. You feel me? My whole body says low risk. The spirit says no, full risk, go for it. My flesh says, are you nuts? Keep silent, shut up. One of the greatest threats to evangelism is fear. We are afraid to speak the truth in love and therefore we do not evangelize. We worry about how people will respond to us. We worry that they will reject us, curse us, or today, report us. We worry that we might lose our jobs or go to jail or whatever. And I say, who cares? It's just a job. Oh my gosh, those guys gotta be quiet. I can't threaten my job. They've already told me I can't talk about Christ or my faith or any of those things. I could lose my job. Heaven forbid, I could lose my job. What, 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 what the heck? It's a stupid job. No, it isn't. It's how I feed my family. You don't feed your family, God does. 
You have that job because of God, and he gave you that job. That you would be a good steward with the money you make from it. That you would be a witness for Christ in that place. Not that you would clam up and be quiet or have fear of losing that job. And it's just jail. Oh, it's terrible. I couldn't imagine going to jail. You know what? It ain't that bad. You think as soon as you walk into a an imprisoned encampment or a jail cell that Christ is like, I got to stay out here. And then you go in, ah, you know. Is he not with you? Do we really fear being rejected by people? I've been rejected my whole life and, and most others have. My, my, my dad rejected me when I, was, when I was a teen, when I was a junior higher. You know what? I learned to deal with that. And Christ has never rejected me. I've certainly given him plenty of reason to, but he hasn't. Why? Because I have been justified by faith and will never, ever be rejected by God. If God were to reject me because of my behavior or lack of faith at times or whatever it is, he would also have to reject his only begotten son and also his own plan of salvation. If he kicks me to the curb, he kicks his son to the curb, and I know he ain't going to do that. He would have to ultimately reject himself. And if I have been permanently accepted by God, why would I care about being temporarily accepted by flesh and blood? By those who are here today and gone tomorrow. By simple chaff. By men. Jesus said to his disciples, do not fear those who can kill the body, but fear the one who can destroy the hell for eternity and destroy the soul in eternity for hell. Don't fear men. Don't fear your boss. Don't fear your neighbor. Don't fear that person in line over there. Don't fear anyone. Literally, people are not worthy of our fear. It's such a powerful emotion. They are not worthy of our fear. Only God is. We should only fear God. And when you're a believer, you don't have to fear that he'll destroy you. You revere him. Paul's example is simple. Witness to everyone, Jews and non-Jews. All must hear the gospel. People from every tribe and tongue. We mustn't allow fear to distract or divert us. Being a living sacrifice means being willing to die to ourselves for the sake of Christ and his gospel. We must learn to die to our comfort, die to our fear, die to our worry. Christ has secured us and nothing will change that no matter what enemy comes our way, persecutor, angry person, upset person because we preach the gospel, nothing is going to change us positionally with God. We Heard it earlier, neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in our Lord Christ Jesus. Why would we fear men when it comes to preaching the gospel? Paul is essentially saying, don't. You belong to Christ. Ultimately, no one can oppose you. Oh, they can kill your body. They can curse you. They can slander you. They can persecute you. You can lose your job. If you're in England and preach on the streets, you'd probably go to jail. Oh, they can do all sorts of mean and nasty things to you. But they can never take what I've given you. Never. Five. What do we witness with? What do we witness with? Answer, we witness with a message of repentance and faith, the gospel. Verse 21, repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, repentance 
is necessary because all people, both Jews and Gentiles, have sinned and face God's wrath of judgment. Faith in Christ is necessary because he alone is the way of salvation. On some occasions, Paul stressed the need to turn away from worshiping images made by human hands. In other occasions, he emphasized the need for faith in Jesus as Israel's crucified and risen Messiah. Thus, both repentance and faith are related to God as well as to Jesus. Repentance before God involves coming to faith in Jesus and believing in Jesus involves turning away from everything that displeases God. For us, It isn't all that difficult to talk about Jesus with others. The difficulty is in talking about repentance. Especially since we're surrounded by people who say they believe in Jesus, but also maintain an unrepentant attitude towards sin. There are many, you must understand, there are many false versions of the gospel being propagated in America today, from health and wealth to the denial of Jesus as God. In my opinion, the sin-accepting, lightning-softening false gospels are among the most dangerous. Take, for instance, the gay gospel. Its creators, architects, have deliberately reinterpreted key passages about homosexuality, making it not a sin as long as those who engage in it love each other. They say if you love your same-sex partner, there is no reason to repent because you are not in sin. You are simply doing what God created you to do, love another person. Even more twisted, they say, you are actually being like Christ because he embodied love. Now, this particular false gospel is growing in popularity. It is gaining momentum as more and more heterosexual church folk are desensitized, jammed, and converted to this ideology. The homosexual agenda actually cannot advance in our culture or in the church without heterosexual support, period. This is why we are bombarded by an endless stream of media that beautifies and glorifies the lifestyle. Hollywood's strategy is to make us believe that the homosexual lifestyle is not only safe, normal, common, prosperous, but superior. But ask any ex-homosexual, and he or she will tell you differently. They will tell you that it was destroying them physically, emotionally, and most certainly spiritually. Better yet, read the word of God, which never glorifies sin of any kind. And we must understand that that God included repentance in his gospel design. It is not enough for us to simply say, believe in Jesus. We must also say, repent. Faith and repentance go together and vice versa. Faith in Jesus without repentance is false faith. And repentance without faith in Jesus is moralism. We've got to be like Paul on this issue. We have got to proclaim both repentance and faith. We've got to. If you find yourself in a situation where where a person claims that they believe in Jesus and yet they have a, a, a disposition, you know, that's okay with sin and any type of sin... That's an opportunity for you to proclaim, do you understand repentance? Do you understand that Jesus came proclaiming this? This is how he proclaimed the gospel, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Have you ever read the story of Zacchaeus? Have you read the story about how all the Christians in in one particular city burned all their magic books? The Bible is is riddled with endless examples of people turning away from sin, self-sufficiency, whatever those sins are, the things that God despises, turning away from those things and turning completely to God in and through Christ Jesus. Repentance is necessary. It is part of the gospel. 
And I guarantee you, you're going to come across people who say they believe in Jesus but are perfectly fine with this sin or that sin or any of these things. And I'm not saying that you don't sin and I'm not saying that I don't sin, but your attitude about sin should be way different. You ought to hate the things you do. You ought to be like Paul who said, man, I cannot stand doing the things that I hate to do. I keep doing them. I'm a sinner. and I." No, it's not so much as how you sin it, Christianity has to do with your attitude about it. Do you hate it? Do you despise it? Does it bother you? Do you weep over it? In the lives of others, more particularly in the life of yourself, do you hate sin? That will be one of the number one markings of a true believer, hatred of sin, because it shows, that the, it shows that the presence of the Holy Spirit is there in that person's life because the Holy Spirit hates sin. You find yourself in a situation where you got people, I love Jesus, but, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a gay Christian. Anyone who puts a, a subtitle or a, a prefix before Christian, that's actually what they are. I'm a this Christian. No, you're that. I'm a this Christian. No, you're to be a Christian only. Your identity is in Christ. It's not in your sexual, you know, in your sexual desires. It's not in anything else but Christ. We should not identify ourselves with anything other than Christ. And this is not just a homosexual issue. This is a very broad problem in the church or in our culture today. You will come across people who say Jesus and yeah, but this is cool and this is fine and I'm okay with this. I work with guys like that. And I'm constantly saying, but, you know, hey, bro, you know, we're, we're, to, we're to turn from our sin. I'm not talking about perfection, brother. I'm just trying to help you understand that you, you, you love Jesus, you say, but, but you also talk about your love of sin and particular sins. And, and to love Jesus means to hate sin. And there are churches today and pastors that are preaching this junk, you know, you can believe in Jesus, that's great. But they completely jettison repentance because they redefine what scripture says. There's no reason for you to repent as a homosexual as long as you love that person. You can have Jesus and do those things as long as there's love there. That's a false gospel. The fact of the matter is, any person who believes in Jesus who has not repented of sin will not be in the kingdom. That's reality. They will not. And you might be thinking, well, you're judging people. You're, you're doing this, and I'm just telling you what the Word of God clearly teaches. That's all. It ain't on my authority. I got nothing. We must be like Paul who boldly preached repentance and faith to all. And we must, we must, we must do this with the same attitude as Paul. He loved people and desired to see them profit from the word. He didn't do it judgmentally. He didn't do it critically. He didn't think he was better than others. He did it because he was learning to become like Christ as Christ loves people and is compassionate and empathizes and pursues. And he wanted to be like Christ. And so his attitude was, I want people, no matter what they're mixed up in, no matter what they do, no matter what they're involved in, false religion, sexual issues, whatever, I want them to profit from the word of God. I want them to come to the, to, and this is the ultimate profit, to come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want the word of God to profit them the rest of their lives as they hear it and live it and apply it and obey it and they become more and more like Jesus all the way to glory. That that was his attitude. That was his heart. We must also have that same heart. And that's what he's saying to the elders. Do things the way that I've done them with that attitude and that heart. Amen? I know it ain't easy. I know it isn't easy. Now, next Sunday, Lord willing, we will take a look at Paul's courageous example plan to be here. Don't miss it. I hope you've been blessed. We're going to have a time of communion now where we can reflect on what we've heard and learned, where we have an opportunity to, and this is for believers only, 
opportunity to reflect on what we've heard, an opportunity to repent of any sin that we might have, to confess our sin before God, to remember the finished work of Jesus Christ. You know, all of these things, because we have, you know, we're flesh, can, and it can sound like we need to walk out of here and, and you know, we got a checklist now of all the things I need to do, and, and at the end of the day, I really hope that God's happy with me for doing these things. We don't ever do anything for those motives and reasons. We do them because we're saved, because he loves us, not so much as that we're trying to earn something from him. We're not trying to earn anything from him. Christ earned all that we need. And so as we reflect on these things, don't, yes, be compelled to obey, be compelled to action. We must be doers of the word, not mere hearers, but don't do it to try to justify yourself before God. Don't do it to try to get something from him or to try to impress others. You're a justified saint through faith You have all that you need in Christ. He's given you everything. And now we respond in humble obedience out of love, not out of compulsion. You remember the finished work of Christ and how he died for you and for your sin and how he paid your debt and how he, man, how he removed the wrath of God from your life. And be refreshed by God's grace in this time. And then again, commit yourself, recommit yourself to obeying the Lord. Every week we have to, this should be a daily thing where we wake up and confess or at night we confess or in the afternoon we confess and we're constantly living in a cycle of repentance and confession and committing. That should be our life. That should be, that's a mark of a true believer too. And so do that during this time. Father, thank you for communion, Lord. May we reflect upon what we've heard, confess, repent of sin, remember the finished work of Jesus. He's done it all for us. We, we can't earn our salvation. We can't earn your favor or any of that stuff. We're simply responding out of gratitude and love to you, and that's why we obey. And we're commanded to obey too, so that's part of it. May we be refreshed by the grace of God in Christ Jesus during this time renewed by that beautiful, wonderful grace. It's a fountain that has never dried up or quenched. And may we commit ourselves to obeying the Lord. We have learned today, Lord, what it looks like to do ministry and what it looks like to be a witness. May we apply these truths and live them out all for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Elements are on the sides, help yourself.